Matthew chapter 22. You may ask me, Pastor, I thought you preached Matthew 22 to us last Sunday. Well, I did, but there's 46 verses in that chapter. And by Sunday evening and Monday morning, I was distraught that there was too much in the chapter that had been overlooked, and I want to review it again in the minutes that we have for this service. Matthew chapter 22 is so full of doctrine and six particular points of doctrine that we want to know each one of them. Uh, Matthew 22 can be summarized this way, and this is how the Lord has moved me to want to preach it to you again. It is a summary of six of the ancient landmarks of our faith in our church, the Church of Greenville. In six words, verses 1 through 7, 70 A.D. That's an ancient landmark of the faith of Bible Christians. It's something we believe and understand. If I go to verse 14 and look at the second lesson of verses 8 through 14, it's election. Many are called, but few are chosen. One of the ancient landmarks of our faith. If I go to the next lesson, it's government. The next lesson, baptism that shows resurrection. The next lesson, love. The next lesson, sonship. What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? Will you think about that with me? Will you, get, will you embrace Matthew 22 with me right now? 70 AD, verse 7, election, verse 14, then government, then baptism and the resurrection, then love, the two commandments of love, and then sonship. Yes, Lord, we worship thee, and we thank thee for thy son, who has taught us so much doctrine, even in one chapter. It tells us in verse 33, of this chapter. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. They were astonished at his doctrine. Doctrine is just a body of knowledge. It's a group of tenets of what a person believes. And so don't let the word doctrine confuse you. I've mentioned this before. It's not a, we just don't use it very often in sentences ourselves, but it's describing a body of knowledge that a person believes. And Jesus Christ in this chapter lays out doctrine of at least six different main points that was astonishing. And it astonished them, and it should astonish us at how much he was able to convey in so few words. The drama and doctrine of this chapter are worth the effort and time to learn both and to follow him. Right. The doctrine that makes up our faith, our religion, is certain, and it's impregnable. It cannot be overthrown by men. And these were the most knowledgeable men in the world at the time. And these men knew the most about the true religion at the time. And these men conspired together in their various sects of the Jews' religion to try to overthrow Jesus Christ. This were, these were their best shots. These were the best shots they took, and they lost. Jesus undid them each time. And then he had a trap for them that he used at the end of this chapter. And he did them in so that they durst ask him no more questions. Because he shamed them every time they opened their mouths. He had started the practice when he was but 12 years old. As we find in Luke chapter 2, that after three days, Joseph and Mary, three days, Joseph and Mary finally find him. 
And he's asking and answering questions with the doctors of the law. And they were astonished then, when he was 12. You will learn in this chapter a number of lessons, and we will just pass right on over that. And we, when we look at, let me read you the verse, seven verses so that we can look at the first lesson. And the first lesson of the chapter is the parable of the marriage dinner for the Jews. Because the gospel was first preached to the Jews, and this is a parable. And so it is a metaphorical, symbolic picture of the gospel blessings of knowing about the Messiah and following him. First seven verses. Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king, which made a marriage for his son, and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden. Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants, and entreated them spitefully, and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies, and destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Amen and amen. The kingdom of heaven, as it's described here in parabolic terms, is like a marriage. The G Lord Jesus Christ compared heaven and the gospel era of the New Testament, which is what the kingdom of heaven is. It's the gospel era of the New Testament, very distinct from the Old Testament, in which the Messiah has come and we worship him and follow him for a new order of religion with new ordinances and a new form of worship. Jesus told the woman of Samaria, they don't worship me correctly in Jerusalem. They don't worship me correctly in your mountain of Mount Gerizim of the Samaritans, which is 30 miles from Jerusalem. The Father seeks those that will worship him in spirit and in truth. An internal religion, spirit, small s, an internal religion of our intellect and our spirit, which was contrary to the Jews because theirs was outwardly, God seeks those that will worship him in spirit and in truth because the Samaritans didn't have any truth. They were aping the Jews' religion by building a mock temple in Mount Gerizim to try to ape the Jews. And so Jesus told the woman of Samaria, they're not worshiping right, me right in Jerusalem. It's to be in spirit, not outwardly. And they're not worshiping me correctly in the Samaritans because it's supposed to be truth, not their made-up error. And that's what we want to give him. And so we have New Testament truth. And it began with John the Baptist. And then it came through Jesus Christ, and then his apostles, and then the men that they ordained. And those are the servants of the first seven verses. These servants, starting with John, announced the Messiah. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God. John the Baptist said, Behold the Son of God. And the Jews rejected that message. They were too busy. And there could be so many things said about that, but we want to get through the whole chapter in the time that we have. When we look at this, the king has prepared everything. In the Old Testament, it's called a feast of fat things. In the Old Testament, it's having unlimited wine and milk to drink free. That's, those are terms to describe the gospel. Right. We get to hear about the Son of God visiting the planet Earth 
and laying down his life on the cross of Calvary for us. It's a tremendous privilege. And it's called here a marriage feast. And so the terms of a parable, we're not supposed to get hung up on the terms of a parable. We want the overall lesson. The terms here, though, are oxen and fatlings, all the heavy investment that the king made for us to have a great feast. And it's the gospel feast of the New Testament, but the Jews didn't want it. They killed the Lord of glory. They killed his apostles. They persecuted his apostles. They turned away from John the Baptist. They said John the Baptist was crazy. They said Jesus had a devil. They called Jesus a Samaritan. They said Jesus did what he did by the power of Beelzebub. So they rejected him. But there's a God in heaven, and he loves his son. The Father loveth the Son. And so God wrecked vengeance on the nation of the Jews for them and what they did to his Son. Look at Luke chapter 19, and I don't want to turn you away from Matthew 22 very often, but look at Luke 19 so that we can see this statement by Jesus about what was going to happen to the Jews. And so in that seventh verse, God was angry with the Jews, and he destroyed those murderers. Who are the murderers? The murderers of the Lord Jesus Christ and burned up their city. And he burned up their city, which had been prophesied from Leviticus and Deuteronomy all the way to the book of Hebrews that happened in 70 AD by the Roman armies. It was the greatest tribulation in the history of the world. Nothing else has ever come close to it, which we understand and have preached so many times in the past. You all know that. And it was just a simple review by slides on Wednesday evening. Luke chapter 19. Verse 43, for the days shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee. That's the Roman siege of the city and compass thee round. They will enclose the city of Jerusalem and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground. That is to take the city right down to its foundations and thy children within thee and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. God had visited the Jews through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Messiah. And they rejected him, and so God burned up their city and destroyed those murderers, and that's exactly what they deserved. And thanks be to the grace of God for changing us Gentiles, because that's the next lesson. The first lesson in verses 1 through 7 is the national rejection of the gospel by the Jews and their ruin for it. In verse 5, we want that warning and we never want to forget it, but they made light of it. Don't ever make light about the gospel. To hear the gospel and to understand the gospel and to believe the gospel And to appreciate the gospel to a certain degree is all by God's grace. If you hear it, it's God's grace that brought it to you. If you understand it, it's God's grace that helped you understand it. If you have a little bit of conviction about it, it's God's grace that convicted you by the preaching of the gospel of his dear son. Therefore, you ought to do everything in your power to react and obey that conviction that is in you. Do not make light of it. Do not think about your things on the Lord's day. Do not daydream while I'm preaching to you. I am irrelevant in the equation. I am Balaam's transportation. I am simply communicating the word of God to you from his word. 
I'm nothing. His word is everything. Don't make light of his word. Paul would say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, despise not prophesyings. Learn to love preaching. People today don't love preaching anymore. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 4, for they will turn their ears away from the truth. They will no longer endure sound doctrine, but they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears and be turned from the truth unto fables. Most Christians today want some big combination of entertainment and fables rather than endure the sound doctrine of the Bible. Now you know from verse 33, this chapter is about doctrine. And I'm going to give you doctrine today in the time that I have. Don't despise it. Embrace it. Don't turn away. Don't wish that I wish our church had more entertainment in the pulpit. I wish our church, I wish he told more stories. He just wants to preach the Bible all the time. Why doesn't he tell more stories? Because he's not a good storyteller. And because I'm supposed to, in context, with them turning from the truth to fables, I have a three-word job description. What is it? Preach the word. 2 Timothy 4.2. And so all of that was to say, look at verse 5, but they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And what are you going to do with it today? Lord, help us to take it very seriously. Look at Luke chapter 14. I said I wasn't going to turn you very often. Luke chapter 14, because I want Luke's account of these things. There it was farm, and it was merchandise. That's a calling, and that's a business, that's a trade. And I want you to see some other angles that the Lord Jesus Christ made on it that Luke recorded for us. Luke chapter 14 and verse 17, and sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, you can tell it's the same event, come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee have me excused. What a cheap excuse for turning away from the Lord Jesus Christ and the offer of the New Testament spiritual gospel kingdom of his dear son. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. That is a huge monetary investment, and I go to prove them. I pray thee have me excused. So what? If the kingdom of heaven is what it should be to you, like a treasure hidden in a field or a pearl of great price, you would sell everything for it. Verse 20, another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. And so look at how the Lord Jesus Christ goes after business and investment and family. If you do not hate your spouse in comparison to your love of Christ, according to Luke 14, Matthew chapter 10, and other places, you cannot be his disciple. Because the offering of God is so much more than any spouse can ever do for you even if you have the best spouse, like your pastor does. And I want every one of you to disagree with me. Even if you have a great spouse, that spouse can never do for you what God, the Father, can do for you through Jesus Christ and the gospel era of the New Testament. So there we have the first seven verses. And I've I've tried to give them to you in one word descriptions today. 70 A.D. And you were able to watch some slides with me on Wednesday evening to remind us that it's one of the largest events in the Bible, yet most Christians don't know a single thing about it. 
and neither did I till I was about 20. Never heard about it at Bob Jones University. Had to hear about it later. Lord, help us. So there's the first seven verses. The gospel was preached to the Jews. They rejected it. God burned up the city of Jerusalem and destroyed those murderers that had killed his son. So what happens next? God had told through Jesus Christ to his apostles, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. That was the day of Pentecost. Then I want you to preach in Jerusalem, then in Judea, that's the state around the city of Jerusalem, then in Samaria, then the uttermost parts of the world. So there was a transition taking place. See, Jesus never preached to Gentiles. Jesus said, I am sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So when the Jews turned the gospel down, here's what we get to read in verses 8 through 14 about the Gentiles being invited. Then saith he, verse 8 of Matthew 22, this is the king, this is God. Remember, it's the king that is throwing a marriage for his son in verse 2. It's God for the New Testament gospel kingdom of his son, Jesus Christ. Then saith he to his servants, the wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. In verse 8, those are the Jews. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways, and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. And so we come to the second lesson, which with a one-word description is election. But let's notice the, the, the overall lesson. Verses 8 through 14 are the preachers being sent to Gentiles. First sent to the Jews, they rejected it. God burned up their city in 70 AD. But earlier than that, somewhere in the 40 and 50 AD, the Apostle Paul being first, yes, Peter preached to Cornelius' household, but Peter was a minister of the circumcision, and Galatians chapter 1 tells us that. Peter's ministry was to Jews. But the Lord did use Peter to go, and Acts chapter 10 is all about it, and preach to Cornelius of the Italian band of the Roman army. But then in Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas are singled out by God in the church of Antioch of Syria, 300 miles north of Jerusalem, and they are sent across the Mediterranean into what we would call Turkey today, which was Asia Minor of the Roman Empire, and they preached to Gentiles. This was a huge change. Paul goes into the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia. You say, you're confusing me with Antioch. I'm sorry. Paul's home church was Antioch of Syria, north of Jerusalem. But he goes into the synagogue in Acts chapter 13 in Antioch of Pisidia, which is in Turkey. And at the end of their regular service, they said, Men and brethren, do you have any word of exhortation for the people? Is there anything you'd like to say? And Paul, Paul got a gleam in his eye and said, I think I might have a word or two. 
And so he gets up and he preaches the first recorded sermon by Paul in Acts 13. Well, the next Sabbath day, the whole city came out. Because those people heard things they had never heard before, and what they heard were that the Scriptures had been fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. And so the Jews saw this huge crowd, and they'd never had a crowd like that come to synagogue before. All these Gentiles flocking there as well. So the Jews began blaspheming the Apostle Paul. Paul turned to them and said, You've judged yourselves unworthy. Jesus' parable. You've judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. And when the Gentiles heard that, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Acts 13 and 48. And so there's a transition. And Paul said, from now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. And that is this second half of Matthew 22 and the first 14 verses. So verses 8 through 14 are Jesus sending out his preachers to the Gentiles. I guess it was a year ago, or a year and a half ago, I spent a number of sermons going through all of Paul's preaching trips. Do you remember? And I I threw up maps for you to be able to see how Paul turned the Roman world upside down by preaching to Gentiles. And that's what's being described right here. But as they went out and gathered in the Gentiles, the Bible tells us, that those preachers gathered in both good and bad. What does good mean? Well, by context, it means chosen. As many as, as were ordained to eternal life believed in Acts 13, 48. What are the bad? Those are the bad that just come along with family. They come along for friendship. They come along for the fun of it. They come along for something to do on Sunday. They have some sort of a good feeling about it, but there's no work of grace that changes their lives. So they're called, they're invited to this thing called the New Testament era of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, but they don't really have a heart for it. And in any church, including the churches of the New Testament, they had reprobates in them. And Paul tells us about them, and Jesus tells us about them. Over in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, when he spoke to the seven churches of Asia, he would identify some that were in those churches that didn't know him and that he was going to destroy. But he would say, the rest of you that have not known the depths of Satan, like some of your church members, I will spare and have mercy upon them. And so we have... Many are called, but few are chosen. Philippi was one of Paul's better churches. When you read in the book of Acts and you read the the epistle to the Philippians, it it was one of his better churches. They they were a faithful church. They, They weren't as rich as the Corinthians, but when Paul was traveling, they always supported him. And those that's one of the, the good things about that church. And when you read the book of Philippians, there's not a lot of bad things said about the church at large. You know, when you read about Corinth. 1 Corinthians is one chapter is a heresy, the next chapter is a heresy, and uh, the 16 chapters are about 12 heresies. The, The Corinthian church was really messed up in comparison, but even at Philippi, Paul said, I have warned you with tears, and I warn you now again, that there are many that are the enemies of the cross of Christ in that church, who mind earthly things, Because their life in this world, the merchandise, the farm, the wife, the yoke of oxen, the new piece of real estate was more important to them than the gospel. 
It's true of every church. It's true of our church. And I don't want you to do very much of this because the emphasis should be on ourselves. When the Bible says examine yourselves, it doesn't mean examine the rest of the church. It means examine yourself. But in a church, you can see those that have 30-fold fruit, 60-fold fruit, 100-fold fruit. Then there are those with no fruit at all. They look like tares. Some will be tares. And that's the good and the bad. Let's flip back to Matthew 13 and remind ourselves of what we learned two weeks ago when I preached to you the parables of Matthew 13. Do you remember that the second parable is in verse 24, is the parable of the wheat and the tares. And the disciples, the servants, the preachers, the preachers, they wake up in the morning and they look at their church and they find out, that wow, we've got a bunch of tares in this church as well as wheat. And so they ask their master, listen, did you sow good seed? Yeah, we know you only would sow good seed. Where'd these tares come from? And the master said, the devil, you know, my enemy sowed them. My enemies tried to infiltrate your ministries. And the servants, the preachers, said to the Lord, should we go rip up the tares? And the Lord said, no, no. Your perceptive and discerning ability is not good enough. While you're trying to rip up a tear, you may pull up some wheat. And I don't want you pulling up the wheat, so you, hands off. You keep preaching, you keep digging, you keep dunging, and in the last day, I'll assign the angels to do that job. They won't make any mistakes. They'll know who's in the book of life, and they'll keep the wheat intact, and they'll get all the tares, bind them up, and throw them into the fiery furnace. And so that's the parable of the tares uh, in short. Then, when you come over in Matthew chapter 13... There is the parable of the net, and it's in verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind. So when men go out and preach, and a family comes in, and this is just for the sake of illustration, a family comes in, and the woman is a Lydia. Let's just, it's illustrative only. The woman's a Lydia. The Lord's opened her heart, and she's on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ, and she loves the Lord Jesus Christ, and she wants to give him everything. She's a, she's a Mary. She wants to sit at the feet. Of, she's no Martha. She's better than Martha. She's a Mary. She wants to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn everything she can. Well, the husband, he loves his wife, and he's got a little bit of religious guilt. He feels a little bit of guilt, so he tags along with her. And so here, here he comes, and then there's five kids that run from the age of 17 down to four. And one of those teenagers loves the Lord Jesus Christ like their mother does. And there's others that just tag along. And so a preacher, and he can't help it. He can't help it. The husband says, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So he baptizes both parents. And then three of the children want to be baptized. And he baptizes the three. Two of them aren't even saved. But how do you tell? They answer the questions the right way. And so it's a net, it's a, it's a preaching net that gets, that gets both bad and good fish. And see, it's verse, it's verse 47, they gathered of every kind, Matthew 13, 48, which when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered a good into vessels, but cast 
the bad away. And the Lord explains it this way. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. Back to Matthew 22. So if we're working our way through the gospel of Matthew, we have Matthew 13 first, then we get Matthew 22. So when we see in Matthew 22 that when the servants, being the preachers, went out to bring the Gentiles in, I mean, they went everywhere. If you combine the gospel accounts, they went to the highways, the hedges, the lanes, and the streets. That's all the chief places of concourse of the Gentiles. Wherever the Gentiles were transacting business and wherever they lived, Paul and the apostles went and preached. And so they gathered of every kind, and there was good and bad. And then in the great day of judgment... God Almighty is going to inspect every single person, whether they belong in heaven or not. And he's going to ask, where's your wedding garment? And the garment we all need is the absolute righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ to be accepted by God. The issue when we meet God is not that we have accepted God. When we meet God, the issue is, has God accepted us? Because Ephesians chapter 1, 6 tells us he hath made us accepted in the beloved. By putting us in Christ Jesus and Jesus dying for us makes us acceptable to God. And that's what counts in that day. And that's being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And Jesus will say, I died for him. He's in the book of life. And we'll be as safe as possibly can be. But there will be others that will not be in the book of life and they'll be cast into the lake of fire for the second death. And the angels will do it, like Matthew 13 told us twice, and like this right here is telling us, when it says the servants, those are not preachers in this verse 13. Those are the angels, because we've already learned that. we got to go to the next lesson. For many are called. One of the things I... Just for your information, I put as much... I put as many more hours into Matthew 22 this past week than I would if I had preached a new chapter to you. And one of the things that I wanted to elaborate on was verse 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. The fastest growing ism in Christian, in Christian circles today is universalism. That there's no hell. That everybody goes to heaven. Nobody likes to think about hell. If I could preach universalism, I would. I hope you know what I mean. The Bible won't let me preach universalism, but I would if I could. I like it better. It sounds nicer that there's no hell. I hope you all know what I mean when I say that, because I really do prefer the Word of God no matter what it says. It's universalism. And so men have taken verse 14 and pulled it out of its context right here, which is pretty plain, and tried to modify it down to where it really doesn't mean what it says. But it means what it says, and you shouldn't be able to miss it because this parable is just building all the way along, and verse 13 is serious. That is not Christians having different degrees of light. That is not Christians having different degrees of offices in a church. That is being thrown into outer darkness, which is one of the descriptions of hell, the mist of the blackness of darkness forever. And this matches up with Matthew chapter 13 
about in the last day, the angels are going to throw them into the furnace of fire. But there isn't time. So I just told you that in an outline, there's going to be a couple of pages worth of material about verse 14 alone. Because verse 14 is very important, and we, don't, we never want to understate it or neglect it. If we understand verse 14 properly, we will tremble before the great God of heaven, and we will make our calling and election sure. That is why it's, people will ask when they hear that we believe in election. So you believe in election by verse 14. How do I know that I'm elect? Well, the Bible answers that question. It answers it very clearly. It says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 11, that you can make your calling and election sure to yourself. You don't make it sure in heaven. It's been sure in heaven since before the foundation of the world when God wrote our names in the book of life. But we can make it sure to ourselves, and that's pretty huge to know that we're God's elect. And so it says, add to your faith. Faith's the first thing, first thing we start with. Add to your faith virtue and virtue, knowledge, godliness, temperance, brotherly kindness, and charity. And there's eight things there that if ye do these things, ye shall never fall because these are the fruits that prove you're elect. Right. Or, as we heard in the back room this morning from the man leading the men's prayer back there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul said about the Thessalonian church, I know that you're elect because of your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope. Now those are six words, but they're combined in three phrases that are precious. Has faith produced works in your life? Do you labor in love and not just say you love? Do you cheerfully endure negative events because of your hope in Christ? That's patience and hope. See, those are, those are Christian graces. Those are Christian graces that a reprobate can't produce. But God's elect do produce, and so we can make our calling and election sure. Oh, there's so much more. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm, you know what time it is, and I know what time it is. Let me read to you the next lesson. Verses 15 through 22. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. This is the most conservative. These are the fundamentalists of the Jews. The Bible tells us the Pharisees were the most conservative and the straightest, straitjacket, think, straightest sect of the Jews' religion. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk, and they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true, and teach us the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. When they had heard these things, they marveled and left him and went their way. They didn't have a thing they could say to him. He had just crushed them by these words. Show me your money. And I, I love imagining my Lord turning a Roman coin a couple different ways. Who is this? Now, you know he knew. 
Who is this? Well, it's Caesar. What are you boys carrying mementos of Caesar around for? There must have been a de facto change of government in Israel. I think you should pay him what he needs. So go ahead and pay tribute. And so that's the lesson. Has this been a big event in our church over its 40-year history? The Lord has led us a long way in our view of government so that we are much more submissive and docile and obedient and give them honor the way the Bible describes and tells us to. And so that's all I get to say about it right now. Lesson number three is government. Can you see the one-word descriptions of these lessons? 70 A.D. Is that an ancient landmark of our faith in the Church of Greenville? It is. Election. Is it an ancient landmark of our... Yes. Government. That we submit and pay. Jesus Christ would summarize, and the Apostle Paul and Peter, both of whom wrote about government as well, they would summarize it as pay, pray, and obey. What's our relationship toward government? Pay, pray, and obey. When you are dealing with somebody about government, and you turn them to, say, this passage, Matthew 22, or Romans 13, or 1 Peter chapter 2, or Titus chapter 3 and verse 1. When you turn them to a Bible passage, and the Bible passage says, Submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Never forget the government, the government at that time was the pagan, violent, Christ killing, apostle persecuting, occupying foreign government of the Roman Empire. It's not the United States of America Democrats. <laughs> you know, Christians want to think, I'm a Republican. If a Democrat gets elected president, I don't owe him. Ever. Oh, yes. Jesus and Paul and Peter said, you owe the Romans everything. Right. Jesus said, pay tribute to Caesar, though that money may have paid the soldiers that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. Never forget that. We still live in the best nation in the history of the world. Nothing like living under the Roman Empire. Nothing like it at all. Well, that brings us to verse 23. And the Sadducees story is hardly worth reading. You know, they, they come up with this crazy story about a woman who was married to a man who had six brothers, and she ends up being married to all seven of them, and she doesn't have kids by any of them. As soon as she marries a guy, he dies. The poor thing, when you read the story, you've got to feel sorry for the woman. The whole thing is made up. And because the Sadducees were the liberals of the Jews, they didn't believe there was a resurrection of dead bodies. They did not believe there were angels. I don't know how they could come up with that. And they didn't believe that there was a human spirit, that when you died, it was all over. Do you know anybody else that believes annihilationism by the name of a sect? The Jehovah's Witnesses are annihilationists, meaning that when you die, you're annihilated and there's nothing left. And so the Sadducees were that way, so they create this story and say, in heaven, in the resurrection, whose wife will this woman be? Well, since they said that, that they were going to presume on heaven, Jesus said, you're all mixed up. We may marry and give in marriage down here, but in heaven we're like the angels. <laughs> because they wanted to pull heaven on him and they didn't believe in it. So he pulled angels on them knowing they didn't believe in it. But by the time he got done, he had proven that Abraham had a spirit that existed after he died. Do you remember? 
how it goes here? The Sadducees were committed to the first five books of the Bible. That is why Jesus took his argument out of the first five books of the Bible, out of the book of Exodus. The Pharisees were committed to oral tradition of the elders. There is a huge difference. When Jesus knew his audience, when he knew the Pharisees, what did he say? Show me the money. He didn't quote them Bible. He said, show me the money. When it was the Sadducees, he said, what did God say to Moses? 300 years after Abraham was dead, did God say to Moses, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, though all three were dead and buried? I am, present tense, one single little word, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That proves that Abraham has a spirit, Isaac has a spirit, Jacob has a spirit, and God still has a relationship with those three men. Even though they're dead, in your opinion, they have a human spirit because God is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. God is the God of someone existing, not the God of the annihilated. How could God be the God and have a relationship with someone annihilated? They had to still exist. And so Jesus tore them apart with one little two-letter word, I am. Because in Exodus 3, 6, where God is speaking to Moses 300 years after Abraham died, God didn't say, I was the God of Abraham. He said, I am the God of Abraham. That is why we argue at the word level in our Bibles, because Jesus argued at the word letter, at, at the word level in the Bible. And so that's, that's the fourth lesson. And how did I summarize it? Baptism. Why are we Baptists? Are we Baptists because the Southern Baptist Convention told us to be Baptists? Or are we Baptists by conviction? We're Baptists by conviction of the Word of God. We're not Baptists by tradition. We're Baptists by conviction. And by being Baptists, every time we baptize by burying someone in water and resurrecting them back up out of the water, we are saying that the Sadducee religion is heresy. We defy the Sadducees simply by baptism. We defy Roman Catholicism by our baptism. We defy those churches that came out of Rome by our baptism. Amen. Rome, infant sprinkling, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Methodists, Anglicans, Episcopalians, the same thing. And so we make a statement by baptism because we believe in the resurrection. Now, when, everybody, when, when all those different faiths come to a cemetery, they all look like Baptists because they put their dead underground. But while, but while their dead are living, they only put a little water and run on their foreheads. But when we make a huge statement at baptism. No baptisms take place hastily in this church because I want you to understand the three important pictures of burial and resurrection. Jesus was buried and rose again for our sins. We bury our old man to rise to walk in newness of life. And when Jesus Christ comes for us, he will resurrect our buried bodies out of the ground by the power of his life-giving voice. Amen. We believe those things. Right. And so lesson number four can be summarized as Baptist, bap Baptist, I said one word, or baptism. Because we show the resurrection, that we believe in the resurrection. Fifth lesson begins at verse 34. When the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together, and one of them asked the Lord Jesus, what is the great commandment? And unless you read the New Testament, you will not appreciate what this scribe was asking. This was a good scribe. This was a good lawyer. 
When you go over to Mark 12 and read, it's a, the, the account is, looks very different. And when you put them together, then you know that the word tempt here in Matthew 22 is a gentle tempt. It's like the Queen of Sheba coming to see Solomon. Do you, do you know what she did? She tested and proved him with questions. Was she trying to catch him so that she could condemn? Oh, no, no. She wanted to see how smart he was. And this scribe knew that the Pharisees had exalted tithes on their herb garden up to the top of the pyramid of duties, and the love of God was left down at the bottom. Let me show you. Luke 11, Luke 11 and verse 42 there's so many verses that could be raised on this particular point. Look at Jesus in Luke eleven forty two. 42. Woe unto you, Pharisees, with an exclamation point, for ye tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass over judgment and the love of God. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. You should have done them all, but you should have loved God first because that's the great commandment. And so Jesus answered him by saying, the first commandment is, you should love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second commandment is, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. He turned Pharisee religion upside down with that answer. And unless you've read the Gospels and thought about it, you don't fully appreciate his answer. We take it for granted. The first commandment is to love God. The second commandment is to love neighbor. We just take it for granted. But the Pharisees didn't. They had reversed things so that it was the outward performance of rituals that was more important to them than loving God and showing justice and judgment and mercy to others. And so the fifth word that we want to remember is love. Is love one of the ancient landmarks of our church? It is indeed. The Lord has led us over, 50, over 40 years to grow and see the greater and greater importance of love in the New Testament scriptures so that sermons have been preached in the second half of that 40-year period that weren't preached in the first half, like love is the greatest. And we dealt with that statement, love is the greatest from every conceivable angle of the New Testament. The greatest grace, the greatest evidence, the greatest commandment is love. And so all that external religion of the Pharisees, Jesus just turned it upside down by saying, love of God and love of neighbor. And some of you told me that you hadn't heard before what I told you last Sunday. And so I'm going to repeat that um, to you. Jesus reduced his religion to, two, to one word, love, and two commandments, love of God and love of neighbor. And the Ten Commandments were on two tables of stone, very clearly in the Bible, on two tables of stone. The first four commandments are the love of God. No other gods, no graven images, don't take my name in vain. Keep my holy Sabbath day holy. Then the next six commandments are love of neighbor. And Paul, Paul taught this in Romans 13, verse 9 and 10. Paul taught this. The next six are honor your father and mother. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet. And those are all wrapped up in the commandment loving your neighbor. So one word, doctrine number five. One word, love. Two commandments, love of God, love of neighbor, all ten. And then Jesus said, everything in the Old Testament hangs 
on those two commandments. Because every other commandment you find is going to fall into the first or the second table of the law. Either it's towards your neighbor or it's toward God. That's number five. Number six, they don't want, it. They don't want to be near Jesus anymore. The, Sad, the Pharisees first with the, with the Caesar question, then the Sadducees with the resurrection question, and then the scribe of the Pharisees with the what's the greatest commandment question. Now Jesus, he has a question for them. What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? And he knew where they were going to go. They were going to go to Psalm 110 and verse 1. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand till I make them enemies thy footstool. And so Jesus asked them, Whose son is he? They said he's David's son. Jesus took that verse, knowing that they knew the verse, and that they knew it applied to Messiah, and asked them, why did David then call his son his Lord? We have the second one-word argument in this one chapter. Jesus based his whole argument on the word Lord. Why did David call his son his Lord unless the Messiah, Jesus, was something much more than just David's son. And see, we know that. We know that. The great mystery of godliness is God was manifest in the flesh. His name Emmanuel means God with us. We know that. Thank you, Lord, for showing us that. For unto you a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. That's a whole lot better than David's son. But Jesus is both. Jesus is the God-man. And so sonship. And you know that sonship, because Roman Catholic concept of sonship is very different from the Bible concept of sonship. They have an eternally generated son in the divine nature of God. That the word of God was divinely generated in eternity, which is false. The word of God is God, ungenerated, underived, altogether Jehovah himself. But Jesus, the incarnate Son, is the Son of God. Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. The angel told Mary, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And so it comes down to sonship. We know that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. We know that Jesus of Nazareth is also the Word of God. So he is Jehovah and he's a man. As Colossians 2.9 would say, the fullness of the Godhead in a body. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the doctrine of Matthew 22. Jesus gave us a list of six of the ancient landmarks of our faith. Can you remember them with me? 70 AD, election, government, baptism, love, sonship. Beautiful. Stand with me, please.